Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? I don't know if it's just me, but there are times I've got this gubbins in the car where I plug my phone in and I can just press a button or just say, Siri, can you send a text message or a WhatsApp message or whatever? And there are sometimes he'll say, do you want me to send that? And I say, yes, please. I always like to say please to Siri, always like to be polite. And then sometimes he says, do you want to change that? And I think, oh, does he offer that to anybody else? Or is it just when I'm sending some of my rather weird texts about the thoughts that I have that he thinks, oh, that, that, that's not quite right. You need to reword that. Does anybody else have Siri ask them to if they want to change what they intend to send? Or is it just me? That is my question for the day. But I have books for the day, which are very exciting. And a listener's question, which we've got answered. So more on that later. That's very exciting. What books, what productions, what dramatics are we covering today? We are covering The Figurine by Victoria Hislop. And Victoria is very kindly coming on the podcast today. We've got All the Little Liars by Victoria Selman. And Victoria is very kindly coming on the podcast today. All the Victorias. Then we've got The Last Devil to Die by Richard Osman. I listened to that as an audiobook. There's a drama that you can listen to on BBC Sounds called Invasive Species. And that was recommended by Johan on the Facebook group. And finally, we've got The List by Yomi Adedike which, yeah, I heard what the book was about, the premise of the book, and just thought, I need to read it, but I have thoughts. Anyway, let's get stuck in. So the first book, The Figurine by Victoria Hislop. Let me read you the blurb of this one. Helena spends her childhood summers with her grandparents in Athens in the late 1960s, when Greece is ruled by a brutal military dictatorship, under which her grandfather, remote and cruel, serves as a general, As a student, her interest in archaeology is ignited by a summer spent on a dig on an Aegean island where love finds her amid the heat and dust. A devastating betrayal and a desire for revenge set her on a new path. Sorting through the abandoned Athens apartment she inherits, Helena discovers a hidden hoard of priceless antiquities. How did her grandfather amass such a collection and what was the human cost? Helena's determination to return precious objects to their rightful places sees her journey to a criminal underworld and wrestle with the meaning of home for the figurine and for herself. Well, what a book. I mean, Victoria is so well known at writing brilliant books and I was really keen to talk to her about her latest one. So let's go and chat to her now. It is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast Victoria Hislop, whose latest fabulous book is called The Figurine. Victoria, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to be on. Really (laughs) wonderful to have such an invitation. Thank you. Oh, it's so nice to talk to you. Let's start with uh, the first obvious basic question. Can you give us a bit of a summary of this book? It's about a young woman. We meet her first as a child who becomes involved in a very, let's say, potentially very dangerous crime 
and it's not the kind of normal crime. It's the crime of the theft of archaeological artefacts, which can lead into sort of very dark waters. Mm. And she discovers that her grandfather was part of a the dictatorship regime in the 1960s and 70s, and that he's a deeply corrupt, actually rather evil man who is also involved in this great network of theft. And she feels it her responsibility to do something about it. And interspersed with all this, of course, there's love and there's tragedy and there's revenge and some very Greek themes about human relationships. And you always paint such a wonderful picture of Greece in your books, from the sights to the smells to the sounds. I do feel that you transport us there, whether it's something previously in time or currently. Is that an important part of your writing? Yes, I think it is. I mean, I think people notice it, let's say a British reader, because it's not their familiar milieu. If you don't live in Greece, then I'm introducing a reader not just to the characters and the stories, but also to the place. And I think when we all read a book that's set in a familiar environment, we're not even really thinking about whether that's how, you know, London smells or looks or what the food is in Birmingham. It's yeah. very an organic part of our own lives. But writing about Greece, yes, I mean, I would say that the story itself couldn't happen anywhere else. I'm not just sort of transporting the reader for the sake of changing the landscape. It's an absolutely sort of integral part of, mm. of the place itself. And of course, the, the smells, the, the mores, the the traditions are all very different in Greece. So I hope to communicate those at the same time. And it's fair to say you don't just Google what happens in Greece. You spend <laughs> quite a bit of time in Greece. <laughs> I love that. Actually, it'd be really interesting to know what Google would answer. <laughs> what is Greece like? No, I spend a lot of time there. I have a house in Crete and I'm there for several months every year. And I have a place in Athens as well. I rent a flat in Athens. I'm very much not a native because that suggests I was born there. But when I'm there, I, I very much blend in. And I do have Greek citizenship. So I have a, a sort of unlimited access to time in Greece. And I speak the language. So I nothing really is limited for me in Greece. I can explore it three-dimensionally, if you like. And there seems so many different parts of Greece and so much in history that it's not as if you think, I'm going to have to relocate to another part of the world because I've run out of stories. Mm. Yes, I never run out. It's true. Having said that, I would never write about the, the classical period, the books mm. that Natalie Haynes is writing and so on, because she is an expert. And that's a whole, that to me is a different country metaphorically. Mm. And I'm, I limit myself, I've always said this with my writing, to anything that happened after around 1896. You probably say, why that date? Because that was the date that my, the year my grandmother was born. And I knew my grandmother extremely well. She lived with us. So I, I think I just picked up that tail end of the 19th century, just from listening to her and knowing a little bit some of the details of her childhood. So I feel I can connect with that very final moment of the 19th century and then the whole of the 20th. 17th century to me, I couldn't even begin to imagine what it looked like. But I think I have enough material in, in Greece's history of the 20th century because it is a very sort of rich a rich century with a lot of change, a lot of conflict, a lot of struggle, um, a lot of development. So there's, there's, it's a, an endless source for me of ideas. And I always learn from your books about the history elements, but you don't deliver it in a way where you're sort of ramming it down our throats of, you must know this about history. It's the way you get us to care about the characters that we learn about the history. But is it... 
is there a burden in representing something that's factually correct and building fiction around it? I could describe it as a burden because I'm not a historian and I didn't even do A-level history. I regard it as a, actually as a responsibility rather than a burden. And of course, the same time that I'm reading in order to pour information or background into the book, I'm learning myself. I always sort of regard the whole exercise as almost like going back to university because I do read and research for usually about two years before I write the book. And I really actually enjoy that period of of just reading and then the way that one book leads you to three others and those three in themselves lead to nine and, and exponentially you're you travel through all these different paths of of learning and, and knowledge. So it's an exciting part. But I am really meticulous about getting things right. And I do lie awake at night once the book has gone to press, being anxious in case one tiny thing is wrong. And I double check and triple check that something happened in 1951, not 1953, because it's so annoying if you get something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great with your attention to detail. Tell us a bit more about Helen, the main mm. character in this book. We don't want any spoilers, but can you just tell us a bit mm. more about her? She's Anglo, actually half Scottish, half Greek. And the first eight years of her life, she never visits Greece. She doesn't really know why. Children don't always ask questions, but the reason is that her mother has left at some point before she's born and has vowed never to return. But at eight years old, her parents decide that actually Greece is a very culturally rich country. Her grandparents are there and she gets sent off for these summer holidays. And you see things through her eyes, her kind of innocence that gradually turns to sort of discovery. And she's a, she's a bright child and she's very curious. Um, but unlike me, because she is quite autobiographical in some way, she she is actually a scientist, not somebody who is naturally a historian or a, doesn't have a passion for reading necessarily. She's a scientist. And that, to me, is the very important difference between her and me, because otherwise some of my friends who've read it said, well, it's funny, she's born in the same year as you, and she wears the same cheesecloth shirts that you wore in the early 70s and the long velvet skirt. So her growing up years in the English part of her life, because they live in, in Suffolk, that part of her life does quite mirror my own. She grows up in quite a small, unexciting town where the most interesting shop is Woolworths. And that was my background. <laughs> and I sort of grew my hair long and frizzy in my teenage and so does she. So there's lots of that part of her is is quite autobiographical. But then what I don't have in my life is this Greek other half. And during the course of the book, she discovers the Greek side of herself, which comes out in a very sort of explosive way. She discovers the sort of the, the hinterland of the Greek psyche that she wouldn't have if she was 100% Scottish. We, we actually watch her going to university and then through into her mid-twenties. So unlike many of my other books, we don't see the protagonist getting old. We don't see them dying because quite often I kill my characters off by the end. I feel I need to complete the circle. But she's very much alive at the beginning and yeah, I, I got very fond of Helena once I realised she wasn't me and she started doing sort of things that surprised me. <laughs> and you're going to read us a little bit from the beginning of the figurine. I am. This is from the very beginning when this little innocent, as indeed an eight-year-old is, who hasn't travelled anywhere before in her life, and we, we see her arriving Somewhere strange, we, we don't yet know where it is. 1968, Helena stood at the top of the aircraft steps, blinking into the sunlight. A hot breeze blowing strands of hair across her face. Why was everything shimmering? So dazzlingly bright. Parmemikri, said the air hostess. 
holding her hand tightly as they descended onto the melting tarmac. Let's go, little one. A passport control. Helena's airline auntie showed the child's stiff new passport to an official before taking her to retrieve her brown plastic suitcase from the carousel. Helena was then handed over to a driver who was parked directly outside the exit, and as they approached the large black car, she noticed a silver statuette perched on the front of the bonnet, a shiny, winged lady. The 50-minute drive took her along the sea, so blue, so calm, and then into a network of busy, colourful streets where she wound up her window to keep out the fumes. Twice, when the car had to stop because of the traffic, a few children clustered around and peered in to look at her, and she shrank back into her seat, embarrassed. In another street, someone approached selling flowers. Everything seemed exotic and strange, the buildings tall, the roads narrow. Finally, in an area where there were much fewer people, much fancier dress shops and more trees, they stopped outside an elegant apartment block. Ezoe Maste, said the chauffeur, speaking for the first time. We're here. Wonderful. And it's lovely to hear you read the, the Greek bits because when I read them, they sounded completely different to how it should be done. Thank you. It was hard to get that, to do the phonetic alliteration, but yeah, it's not an easy language. <laughs> <laughs> and did this story and other books that you've written, do they stay with you after you've finished writing? Yes, they do. I mean, because during the course of the research, I not only read, but I meet a lot of people who are involved in the historical side of what I'm writing about, who are always incredibly kind of friendly and kind. In one book, I'll meet and get to know academics. With my Cyprus book, I met quite a few politicians who were involved in that. With the island, I became involved and still am with the, the leprosy charities. And indeed, the wider story of leprosy, which continues. So I gather a lot of people that I don't lose touch with. And with this book, I met archaeologists who took me on digs, showed me around their work that they've been doing for 60 years. I met the people who run the museums. And they're all, in many ways, it's, it's a much livelier way to research a subject than reading. And the books are still on my shelf, but all the people, they're still people I communicate with and see. So I've made, I've made a lot of new friends through this book. And I think the subject of the book, which is the, the theft and the meaning of the loss of an archaeological treasure, is something very current because of what's happened at the British Museum. Suddenly it's, it's not a little sort of minor subject of minor importance it's been on the front page of the newspapers and dovetailed with that was the story of the Parthenon sculptures sometimes known as the Elgin marbles but not by me which is a very hotly debated issue and all of that has bubbled up again and through this book I'm now on a campaigning committee for their return and I've been the patron of a fundraising project for a big research centre at Knossos, which is the, see everybody listening to, to this will know, but Knossos is the ancient discovery in, in Crete, Minoan Palace and all the other kind of civilizations that lived around there. So yes, I get very involved. Yes, it becomes almost a job in itself my connection with some of these organisations. So when there are Greek organisations or charities looking to further their cause, do they have meetings and sit there and say, right, we need to get Victoria Hislop to write a book about it and then we'll get much more promotion? Are you getting all these emails suggesting well, ideas? Weirdly, weirdly the, the other, one thing happens and then the other, I think. Hmm. I mean, obviously there's only so much that you can do to be effective, but it was really satisfying to be part of the project at, at Knossos because they're now going to be able to build this amazing new educational resource place for the archaeologists to work 
which replaces a very old, slightly dilapidated building from way, way, way decades back. That that was something I feel really pleased to have been able to help because it will be there hopefully for the next 200 years, long after I've gone. I mean, not many years in the scale of archaeology, but as a a place for people to, to learn more about European culture and where we've come from and how it all connected together. That's that's a really satisfying thing to have done. And what an amazing thing to come out of writing such a wonderful book, to have that impact in so many ways. It's just wonderful. Yes, but- I hope so. I mean, I, there is in the book an element, I would say, with a very small p, of propaganda to make people understand why if things are removed from a site or taken to another country far away from where they were created to make people think and I think Mm. write books in order to make people think because that sounds very didactic but I hope it just stirs people's thought processes a bit more and makes opens a window onto something if you like and then they can close the window again and not just enjoy the story, but they might go, actually, yeah, maybe, I, maybe I'll maybe i change my mind about A or B. Yeah, absolutely. Talking of windows, we come to the final question, which is opening a very different window onto your writing habits, Victoria. But this is a question we ask every author on this podcast. So prepare yourself. And it's a very serious question. And the question is, what biscuit powered the writing of the figurine? What was your biscuit of choice? (laughs) That's a really great question. There is a biscuit that's actually mentioned in the book. And it's called a kurabieves, and it's a, it's like shortbread. It's Greek, obviously, but it is crumbly, much much lighter and crumblier. And I bring them back in a box from Crete when I go to London. And it's the when you've only got hand luggage, it's it's the heaviest thing in my luggage because when I have like. 40 of them in a big box. That's quite a weight, a couple of kilos. Um, and they're just delicious, heavily sort of, I'd say, dipped in icing sugar. So they're very, very sweet, but have this amazingly satisfying texture. You can't actually dip them in your coffee because they would just completely disappear in your coffee. But for me, they are... I suppose they're the the Greek form of of shortbread and I'm very addicted and I have no idea how you make them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be my approach. I don't care how they're made. I'll just concern myself with the eating part. They turn up in the book because she, they're described, the smell of baking kurabiedes is is described at one point and it makes her feel very connected with the place. Oh, fantastic. It's just lovely to talk to you and to hear more about the figurine. Victoria Hislop, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, one more author interview and more book reviews. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. So now we go to All the Little Liars by Victoria Selman. Let me read you the blurb of this one. What really happened at Turtle Lake? You think you know, think again. California, 2003. A 13-year-old girl disappears from a party at Carlsbad's Turtle Lake, discovered on the trunk of a nearby cottonwood tree as the word liar graffitied in blood. Three teenagers went to the lake that night, but only two came back. Later, they confessed to murdering their friend. But did they really kill her? And if not, why say they did? Told across two timelines and tapping into a horrific crime, All the Little Eyes is a novel about sisterly love and toxic friendship that asks, how much would you sacrifice to belong? Very good, very good. Let's go and talk to Victoria Selman now. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today Victoria Selman, whose latest fabulous book is called All the Little Liars. Victoria, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Philippa. It is great to have you on. This episode is all about the Victorias. We've got Victoria Hislop and Victoria Selman. Absolutely. (laughs) What more can you want? (laughs) What more can you want? But let's start with the basic obvious question. Can you give us a bit of a summary of All the Little Liars? You know what? In a way, it's a really hard book to summarise. A lot of the reviewers are saying this. In a way, you're better to go into it blind because there there are a couple of really big twists. And if you know too much in advance, it kind of takes the thunder, I think, away. So why don't I tell you a little bit about the case, if this is okay, that inspired the book. Maybe that's the way to to do it without too many spoilers, because this really, really happened. So it's a crazy case, absolutely mad, from about 15 years ago in the States, in Virginia, where two girls, two seemingly normal girls, nice families, nice homes, no trauma, no neglect, no deprivation, anything that would normally be red flags, murder their best friend. And they later confessed to committing the crime. But when they're asked, why did you do it? All they can say is we didn't like her. And I read this and I mean, I'm I'm the mother of teenagers. And so obviously this <laughs> it has a certain relevance for me. Mm. But it, it was a case I read about a few years ago and it stayed with me. And it's just been sort of, I guess, sort of spinning around in my brain, drip, drip, drip. And in the end, I created this fictional. So my book is fiction. The characters in it are completely made up. The girls in the real story were 16. The girls in my narrative are 13. So it's, it's fictional taking what happened. I study criminal profiling, criminal psychology. So I'm really fascinated with motivation. So the book is not, not gory. I'm, I'm very squeamish and I wouldn't, I wouldn't subject my readers to too much gore. But I am fascinated in psychology. So for me, the story was a way of, of trying to understand what could have driven two seemingly normal girls to commit a horrific act. But... It's not the girls I'm really interested in. I'm interested in the people who are left behind, who are impacted by the crime. So the story is actually told through the eyes of the sister. And it's it explores the impact of her family, of losing her sister, of rebuilding a life, of, of not managing to rebuild life. I mean, how trauma stays with you. And therefore, the book is told in two timelines, the past and the present. And it opens in the present day with my character, who the, the sister who for years has not really been able to get her head around this case because mm. although these girls confessed to this crime, there has always been something that just doesn't quite add up. And yet, if they didn't kill their best friend, why did they say that they did? So this has been going on in her mind as well as rebuilding and everything else. And the book opens and she gets a phone call from an unknown caller who says, basically, we need to talk. And it all goes mm. from that. Oh, oh, fantastic. (laughs) And I think it's a good time for me to ask you to read. I think it's literally the first two sentences you're going to read. Shall I read the first two sentences? I don't put everyone to sleep. Okay, so this is from the opening of the book. And this is obviously in, in the sister's voice. It was a case that shocked the nation. 
rocked our town to its roots, put it on the map for all the wrong reasons. And it did, like I said, it happened 15 years ago, but people are literally still talking about this real case. All around the globe, people are discussing it. They cannot conceive of how these two girls could have done what they did. That's why the book has to open, I guess, like that as well. And was it cathartic to sort of take this idea that there was a real occurrence and then build your own, very much very different, but your own story around it and try and address the issues? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I don't know about cathartic. I think because all my stories are always inspired by something real. And then I use that as a jumping off point and take it into fiction, if that makes sense. And so I think it's more that I love that it's rooted in something real. It feels something to really grapple with that I think the stakes change Mm. somehow when you know it's something that basically, okay, the interpretation didn't happen this way, but the root of it happened this way. It changes my relationship with it as a storyteller and I don't know possibly the reader's um, relationship too. Certainly when I watch Netflix dramas that I know are based in something real, it resonates in a different way than if I know it's completely made up. And is there a pressure on you to get the facts right I know it's fiction but it's that weird balance yeah. between wanting to launch on the right basis and honor the real yeah. story but build your own as well yeah yeah absolutely so I think the reader has to completely believe in the story so what people say about my books is it's almost as if you're you're watching a true crime drama on Netflix like literally it feels like true crime and therefore yes absolutely it has to feel real the details have to be right so I root them in an absolute time there's the history of the the history, I mean, I'm not writing a history book, but there are references, contemporary references, which are also metaphors for whatever is happening in the book at the time. So in this book, it takes place when the Iraq war is at, at the beginning stages and they're, they're on the hunt for Saddam Hussein. And there's the thinking, there are moments where they think they're about to get him and then he slips through their fingers. And similarly here in this book, the girl thinks she's about to get the truth and then the truth slithers away before she can quite grab hold of it. So there's there's correlations Also, in terms of the true crime case it's inspired by, I think it's more possibly a case of having to honour the victims. I don't ever want to be exploitative in my storytelling, although they're not real people, they're inspired by real people. Mm. So I feel like I have a responsibility there to be kind in terms of victims and the approach and to tell the victim's story as well, because their voices are so often forgotten. So for me, there's, there's that aspect too. So when a newspaper arrives and some people open it like, oh, dear, there's this story, there's this story. Are you like cracking your hands going, yes, come on, let's see. (laughs) I am interested in what happens in the news, obviously. I think it's funny, though. I think I would find it really hard to write a story that I'd derived from a very current newspaper piece. For example, Mm -hmm. Lucy Letby is the obvious one that springs Mm -hmm. to mind. I would feel very uncomfortable at this moment in writing anything that was inspired by that. It would feel too... Current too close, perhaps. 10, 20 years' time, maybe that's different. So these cases feel like they're a little bit of a distance away and possibly distance gives perspective as well that a very current case, you wouldn't be able to get that same perspective on. So if your books are based on, if the gem of it is something that has actually happened, do the books stay with you a long time after you've finished writing them? You know what? You asked me that question about catharsis, and I suppose that's the part. So they stayed with me for a long time before I start writing them. So I think Uh, about the cases for a long time. But perhaps then the telling of the story is the cathartic moment for me, as you said. And then I almost, it's my way of dealing with it. Maybe that's my way of processing it. So actually, after writing the story, although I'm thinking about the real cases a lot, obviously, Mm. as I'm writing it, when I finished and the book is on the shelves, I find I'm not thinking about it in the same way anymore. So when you're writing it, are you one of those authors that are, can say, oh, I'm just channeling the characters, as I, I'm not telling the story they are, it's just coming through? Or is I don't it think I'm harder? quite as cool as that. <laughs> I, uh, I, try, I try and look through their eyes. I try and imagine how they would see things. I try and, I'm very filmic, I think, in the way people say, in the way that I write. So it's often like you're watching something as well as reading it. And it's because when I write, I don't know if this sounds naff, I hope it doesn't, but I kind of almost see pictures in my head. And I'm kind of describing what I'm seeing happening, like you're watching a film and I'm writing it down. But I'm very interested, like I said, in psychology. So that was that's my interest. So I really do try to get into the heads. And I have a, as well as having studied, obviously, criminal profiling, criminal psychology, I also have a very good friend who is a psychologist. And so I will always run by 
my view of the character and how they would respond to different situations by her to make sure that it's psychologically true. Because I think there's nothing worse than reading a book where it jars psychologically. It's all, they mm. just wouldn't react like that. That's for the purpose of the plot. And it just feels like a cheat. And it for me, that ruins the, the story completely. So it has to feel real, I think. In that you asked about real, does it feel real for the case? But I think, does it feel real for the psychology as well? It's really important to me. So which came first, the studying in this area or the writing or want to write? I think it was the studying. I look, I've wanted to write forever. I mean, literally since I was a little girl, I've been wanting to write. I've always loved to read. I was the kid who was always walking around nose deep in a book. And I think when you love to read, there's always a part of you that would like to write mm. as well. So that was my little aim. It took a while for it to come true. Very, very many years went past before I really seriously tried to do it. And I took courses and so on. And it was while I was taking those courses and writing initially, I was beginning to watch programs like Criminal Minds. I don't know if you, if you mm. like Criminal Minds. It's, mm. you know, obviously, it's a criminal very funny show. And I loved yeah. it. And it got me interested. And then I started reading books like Mindhunter which are just absolutely fascinating. So the author of Mindhunter is the, he's effectively the godfather of criminal profiling. And he talks about cases. He talks about how he started it, how he set it up for the FBI. It's fascinating. And from there, I began to read more. And, and then I was like, you know what? I'm, I should have, I shouldn't have read history at university. I should totally read criminology. <laughs> so you know what? Hey, ho, I'm going to do, it was an open university type course. So I did that, oh. loved it. And then, and then took some more courses like that and was just reading all the time. And um, just, still fascinated, fascinated by it. Oh, fantastic. So when you write the books, including All the Little Liars, which is the best word to write, the first word or the last word? You know what? I love that question. And the answer for me is both. I actually don't start my books, and I, or rather not that I have to, but I always have in mind when I start my books, the first sentence and the last sentence. So I literally know them. And I, I do plan very rigorously, so I have a, a very detailed roadmap as well. But it's the first and last lines I know. So it's, they're my bookends. <laughs> so is the middle word of the whole book the hardest word? It may be and or the, which is probably easy <laughs> enough. <laughs> How do you know when a story idea has got enough uh, flesh on it to become a book? Well, I have a great agent. So what I always do is I will, I have, a, I look, I have loads of ideas. We all have loads of ideas and they're not all book ideas that are good enough to be made into books. And I will, I will often say, hey, David, I've just had this idea about such and such. And if he thinks it's rubbish, I go, hmm, I go, okay, fine, I'll think again. <laughs> and if he thinks it's got legs, I'll be like, okay, send me a synopsis. So then I write a synopsis. He's like, this is good. Okay. Do an outline. So I'll do an outline. And the outline is more for me than for him. So it shows me. Is there enough, as you say, is there enough meat in the story for it to be a story that's going to sustain itself over, what, 80,000 words? Mm. Um, and sometimes it's not. So I had a, a story. I loved the idea. I won't tell you what it is because you never know. I may be able to make it work, but I loved it. It really, really was brilliant to my mind, except there wasn't enough meat in it. I couldn't see how to make it suspenseful enough. The concept was really grabby, but would it? could I keep the reader guessing? Could mm. I keep it interesting over that length of time? And I was like, I'm not sure I can. So I put that to one side. So often, in fact, I, the book I, I worked on most recently has actually ended up in, I should don't hit delete is the truth because you never know what you can take from something. But I've, I've put it to one side, actually, because I wrote the entire first draft, having even written the outline wow. and the first draft. And I thought, just wasn't working. And yeah... I could probably get it to work, but I don't want to just get something to work. I want it to feel magical. And if it doesn't feel magical, I don't want to do it. I'd rather wait longer to, to bring out something I can be truly proud of. Gosh, I was going to ask you what's next, but it sounds like a mental breakdown. <laughs> no, no, I am actually working on something I'm, I'm very excited about, which I'm now in the outlining stage. So again, who knows, maybe it will come to nothing, but it's a bigger picture story. So I'm really interested in family dynamics and also exploring stories through the eyes of people you don't normally see. So for example, for All the Little Liars, it's through the sister's eyes, whereas the normal way of telling it would be through presumably the perpetrator's eyes, I assume, or the, the detective's eyes or whoever. In Truly Darkly Deeply, which was my previous novel, it was a serial killer's legacy explored through the eyes of his daughter. So again, oftentimes you'll see it these kind of stories through the girlfriend's eyes, the wife's eyes. But I was really interested in the child's perspective. Children aren't talked about in these kind of narratives. And yet the impact on children is massive. I mean, it defines them. 
And I was interested in that. How would it how would it affect you growing up to think that the man you loved as a father actually murdered however many people and one of them was even a kid your age? How would that feel? How could you live with that? How could you live with the guilt? For me, it's it's exploring dynamics, it's, it's looking at stories through different voices. And this is a bigger picture story, but it's also rooted in true crime. And it's through explored actually as well, through Dr. Deeply, through the eyes of this guy's daughter. So we'll see where it goes. I'll, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> Maybe in the bin, who knows? <laughs> no, I'm sure not. Well, I hope not for your, for your sake. I'm I hope not. How do you manage the pace? Because you've got the twists and you've got the pace in your books. Does that come yeah. naturally or is that something you have to remind yourself to build in? I think what I do, I mean, yeah, I think my books, people do say are pacey. I mean, I, I think they're sort of, people read them quite quickly, which is nice because I don't write them quite quickly. And I I think what I do to keep the pace going is I'm always in the back of my head thinking, how will a reader respond to this? How will they think? Do they know all the answers at this point? Because if they do, I'm not doing my job. I always have to then get them asking a new question. Suspense is all about question asking, isn't it? So when you have all the information, there's no suspense. So you answer one question, but then you ask another. And that keeps pace going. And jeopardy mm. is important. Keeping the stakes high is important. But you have to love the characters because if you don't, who cares? They could be blown up in a car bomb and you wouldn't care. But if you love the character enough, you'll care if they've got a paper cut. That's important too. Good point. Well, you mentioned questions. We come to the final question, which is the crucial one on this okay. podcast, Victoria. And that is what biscuit was powering the writing of all the little lies? Oh my God, so many biscuits. <laughs> Philip, this is terrible. <sighs> I'm ah. spilling my secrets. You know the biscuits I love, I'm obsessed with at the moment. The Marks and Spencer's chocolate biscuits with the holes in the middle. Oh, with the extra thick chocolate. Yes, that goes right. the extra thick oh, chocolate. The dark yes. ones, because we dark chocolate, but yeah. Oh, dark's too that. healthy for me. They've got a milk chocolate. Are they chocolate too healthy? And a, and a white chocolate version of those. Oh, very but, nice, yeah. very nice. Okay, <laughs> we'll have to try them with that. <laughs> it's just lovely to talk to you Victoria so and to hear to have more about you. your fantastic book Victoria Selman whose latest book is All the Little Liars thank you so much thank you for having me and now we go to The Last Devil to Die by Richard Osman as I say I listen to this as an audiobook it's narrated by Fiona Shaw who is just superb. There's actually an interview at the end with her and Richard which is lovely to hear but definitely don't listen to that before you have listen to the book, wait until you've reached the end because there's lots of spoilers in that. But it's a lovely interview, I thought. This one's recently out in September. It's the fourth one in the series of the Thursday Murder Club. And this is the blurb. Shocking news reaches the Thursday Murder Club. An old friend in the antiques business has been killed and a dangerous package he was protecting has gone missing. As the gang springs into action, they encounter art forgers, online fraudsters and drug dealers, as well as heartache close to home. With the body count rising, the package still missing and trouble firmly on their tail, has their luck finally run out? And who will be the last devil to die? I loved this. I mean, it's brilliantly written. It really is. It's brilliantly narrated. It's got sadness in it that I was unprepared for. It's got humour in it that I was unprepared for. It's got characters that you that you get and are portrayed so brilliantly and there is one scene where there's it's some sort of gang leader and the team from the Thursday Murder Club are offering him a Percy pig and I love that because it's so real you know in a way I just thought it was a great book great fun to listen to very moving some real wasn't expecting that moment. So some sadness, but some fun as well. Very good. And now we come on to the drama. So if you're you're very welcome to join us on the Facebook group, Quick Book Reviews podcast. Johan, who's been a long-term supporter, thank you, Johan, mentioned invasive species as something to listen to. And I thought, well, this sounds very interesting. I need to have a look at it. And look at it, I did. It's five fairly short episodes, 10-15 minutes each. It was done by Radio 4, but it's on BBC Sounds. And this is the blurb. Helen McAlpine reads a speculative serial from Raquel Atala, set in a near future with uncomfortable parallels to our present. With Fran's village almost overrun by knotweed, she wonders if recent global catastrophes might be linked to this very local problem, seeking answers from the one neighbour whose garden remains unaffected. 
I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very interesting. I don't know why I found it easier to listen to episodes than just one long play. I don't know why that was, but I did. I thought it was very well written, thought-provoking, really good. Yeah, so Jahan, thank you very much for that. We've got one more book review and then we come to the listener's question, which hopefully you will find of interest. So hang on in there. You have come this far, you're nearly there. So the last book is called The List uh, by Yomi Adeke. And this is a beautiful, brilliant violety colour. And the minute I heard the blurb, I just thought, I need to read this. So here we go. Verified couple, unverified rumours. A high-profile journalist at Woman Magazine is marrying the love of her life in one month's time. Young, beautiful and successful, she and her fiancé Michael are the couple goals of their social networks. And as Michael has finally landed the job of his dreams, the pair truly seem to have it all. Until one morning when they both wake up to the same message. Oh my God, have you seen the list? It began as a list of anonymous allegations about abusive men, circulated in secret to protect other women. Now it's being published online. Ola made her name breaking exactly this type of story. She would usually be the first to cover it, calling for men to be fired. Except today, Michael's name is on there. With their future on the line, Ola gives Michael an ultimatum to prove his innocence by their wedding day. But will the truth of what happened change everything for both of them? I, as I say, I love the concept of that. I was just like, wow, sounds like a book to read. I read it. I just, it's very interesting because for me, I didn't care enough about the characters to get into it. But I think that was what part of what the author was trying to do. And so that it wasn't automatically the me too. It was just a thought-provoking book. So in some ways I was disappointed with it, but I'm still glad I read it. And it looks it looks beautiful on the old bookshelves. So that that's something at least. But now we come to the reader's question and I should have some sort of drum roll, I think, really for this. I had an email from Debbie. Debbie, thank you so much. Honestly, I love your questions that come through. Debbie was at that point on holiday and on holiday had been listening to the podcast. So I'm sorry for ruining your holiday, Debbie, with my waffle. But anyway, and she says some very kind things about the podcast. Thank you so much. Honestly, thank you, Debbie. And she was referring to an interview I did recently of um, JP Delaney, whose book was called The New Wife. And she emailed me because she'd looked it up and saw two other books with the same title and wondered what authors and publishers think about this. And is it, you know, it's a bit of a risk that somebody might hear of a book and order the wrong ones. And she said it, there must be no rule about it, but she wondered what author's thoughts are on the subject. So I contacted Quercus that published J.P. Delaney's book, The New Wife, and Joe very kindly responded, Joe Christie from Quercus, and uh, he said this, Legally, titles aren't copyrighted, so there's no issue with having the same title. Creatively, it is frustrating if you look up a title you think is perfect for the book and you see that another publisher has had the exact same idea, particularly if it's very close in terms of genre. Commercially, you can see how it happens, particularly in commercial fiction or non-fiction, because you want it to be as immediately obvious as possible for the reader. So really, as ever in publishing, it's as long as a piece of string. If it has been a few years or if the book itself wasn't massive, it wouldn't be a deterrent. But we wouldn't want to call the new Beth O'Leary something similar to Emily Henry. Authors can be more sensitive about it, but some don't really mind. Hope this at least gives some food for thought. Joe, thank you so much for that very considered and useful reply. Yes, I think... What we have to do as readers is not only be aware of the title of the book, but the name of the author, because they're not going to have published two different books with the same title. So I guess it's just marrying up those two details and not just thinking, oh, that's the title of the book. I'm going to I'm going to acquire it. You never know. You could do a very interesting study on books with the same title and comparing and contrasting them. So, yes. Really good question, Debbie. Thank you so much. And huge thanks to Joe for that very considered and brilliant response. 
So that's it. I just need to wrap up and remind you what we've discussed today. We have discussed The Figurine by Victoria Hislop and Victoria very kindly came on the podcast. We've discussed All the Little Liars by Victoria Selman and Victoria, the second Victoria, also very kindly came on. I've told you about The Last Devil to Die by Richard Osman. This drama on BBC Sounds called Invasive Species by uh, Raquel Atala. And then The List by Yomi Adeke. And that's it. We've had a, a listener's question answered. We've had, I've raised a question about sending messages. And I think that's it for today. I think I need to send you on your way, but I'll be back on Friday with a short episode with two authors answering five questions. That's your time. I, you are free now to go and wander in the world. Let your wandering be filled with joy and books. Just look after yourselves. And I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.